Hey guys, thanks for joining me. This is Pop Culture Confidential, and I'm Christina Yerling-Biru. So these days, it can go something like this. If my guest this week, Jared Harris, is in it, well, then it's a pretty clear sign that it's going to be good. Harris was Lane Price on Mad Men, King George on The Crown. He's played Andy Warhol and Ulysses S. Grant opposite Daniel Day-Lewis in Lincoln. And now he's about to star in a spectacular performance on the HBO miniseries Chernobyl, premiering on May 6th. It was in April of 1986 that the Chernobyl nuclear disaster took place. It is one of the worst man-made catastrophes in history. The new miniseries dramatizes the events, the lead-up to it, and the absolutely gruesome aftermath. It also tells the story of the brave men and women, the firefighters, the coal miners, the scientists who worked and risked their lives to help prevent spreading of radioactive clouds further into Europe. I spoke to writer Craig Mazin and director Yuan Renk separately last year about the project, filming in Lithuania, the nature of the Chernobyl events, the politics, lies, and disinformation that spread. And now as we approached the premiere, I got to talk to Jared Harris a bit more in detail about the actual characters in the series. Harris plays Valerie Legasov, the real-life scientist that the Soviet government called when the Chernobyl accident happened. Legasov understood immediately that the authorities were not telling the whole truth and that the situation was disastrous. Stelan Skoshkord plays Boris Sherbina, deputy head of the Soviet government and chairman of the commission looking into the accident. Their partnership in the series, if you can call it that, the one between scientist and government official, is an incredibly interesting dance in the midst of this environment, the one of misinformation and disaster. Emily Watson plays Ulana Kumyuk, the Soviet nuclear physicist committed to and scrambling to get answers. You are dealing with something that has never occurred on this planet before. Cut the phone lines. Contain the spread of misinformation. What will happen to our boys? The pain is unimaginable. In three days to three weeks, you're dead. You can see him, and you cannot touch him. Do you understand? I got to talk to Jared Harris from New York City right in the midst of a very busy press lead-up to the premiere of Chernobyl. Harris, who comes from a family of actors, his father is the legendary Richard Harris, is so often cheeky, fun, and quick in interviews, but he's often played tortured, complicated, and doomed characters. I wondered how he's chosen his parts. They, they came to me. These parts came to me. Um, you know, obviously I didn't know that's how Lane was going to end up when I first signed on to Mad Men. Um, George from the six from the crown was offered to me and probably there was some aspect that they had seen in that, that, Mm -hmm. that take the box for them so that they offered me that role. This part was offered to me after Daniel Day-Lewis turned it down. Thank God he quit acting. (laughs) Um, but certainly in this version in Craig's version, He's such a reluctant hero. True. You know, he, I mean, I don't think if, I mean, he would, I mean, there, there was sort of one, I think it was one day in rehearsal and we were sitting there, 
in that scene in the Politburo where uh, the he's suggesting the, what the problem is, and but he doesn't ever imagine that he's going to be the one that's going to have to go down there. You know, he's just suggesting that somebody else goes down there, and then Gorbachev goes, "Well, take him with you," because then he and then there was this that that maybe that I would try and voice some sort of. Uh, you know, a, a resistance to the idea, but Craig says you can't. You know, you couldn't do in, that in Western society. You might be able to in a boardroom, but not it, not there. Yeah, I'd like to go back and ask you about that because one of the things that's really intriguing in in this series is that it recovers names and history of this disaster um, that have been forgotten or maybe even erased. Now, yeah. Valery Legasov, um, who was he, and and what was his role, um, his main role in the events? Valery Legasov was a uh, nuclear physicist. Um, he was a fully paid-up member of the Communist Party. Um, and he was the guy who like, essentially answers the phone call that day and um, ends up going down uh, to try and figure out, well, what's happened, which he's got a pretty good indication of what's happened. And he has a sort of his worst suspicions are confirmed. And then they've got to try. He's responsible for figuring out how to fix it, which, of course, everybody ignores him because uh, everyone ignores the person who knows the most in the room. And in that sense, my character and Emily's character have a lot in common. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's the sort of smartest people in the room who are ignored. I, I just sort of describe the character as being the Cassandra character from the Trojan myth. He's the person who knows what's happening and what's at stake that no one pays attention to, which sort of quite often seems to happen to the scientists. But certainly, you know, the climate scientists at the moment are having a very hard time being heard. <laughs> exactly. So many um, things to think about that are happening today. And I did talk to Mason and Rank in, in their interviews about the sort of fake news aspect of, of the Chernobyl story. The information that came out from the authorities and, and cover-ups and disinformation, what did you learn about these things in, in your process? I mean, it, it's fairly well understood that the, the Soviet, Soviet Union had a sort of massive propaganda um, aspect to it and that they controlled the, all the news. Um, so in that sense, it was all news was fake news over there. Um, and the, I, I was surprised about how effective that, that has been and their control of the narrative. I can't tell you the number of times that I've spoken to people since working on this and I described it, told them what I've been working on. Friends, people at restaurants, uh, just you know, casual uh, meetings at, across a, di- a dinner table with friends of friends. And when I say Chernobyl, they go, oh yeah, did, it, wasn't that, that whole thing was set off by some dude dropping a spanner into the nuclear reactor or something. They dropped the hammer into it or something. So in that sense, it's similarly to when a plane goes down, they, like, they try really hard to blame the pilot um, uh, it was on. They try and blame human error on it. They they were successful, and that still seems to be the sort of prevailing attitude. That the narrative that they put out there was that it was a an individual's mistake rather than a, a failure of the state, which it was very firmly. And that's one of the things that Craig gets at in the story is 
how how dangerous it is to allow those uh, those lies to go unchallenged. You know. So, what was the research process like then? Did you have Legasov's diaries, for example, that you can see? In- no, no. And again, he he's been quite successfully erased mm-hmm. from the story, uh, which is one of the one of the things that he's threatened with. Um, they've even when I mean, I went, I spent a long time online digging stuff up, and it was very hard to. There's there's stuff of him out there. There's footage of him out there. But um, and the um, we have it being audio tapes. I think they were actually it was a diary that he put out. It was a journal or something like that. Um, but that was all real. He actually did manage to get his uh, his findings out to the scientific community. But I mean, I couldn't get hold of that either. So um, and and in the end, to be perfectly honest with you, it I, there was a certain point after about you know, almost two months of doing a lot of digging that I realized that it wasn't gonna, it wasn't that useful because Craig, Craig, he's, it, it's, it's faithful to the, the events, but he needed to, um, to do a little bit of, uh, um, writing essentially well, in of terms course. of he needed to telescope certain parts of the story and, and, um, the, the, the relationship, that he was interested in exploring with regard to Legasov is his relationship mostly to Chabina and then also to Emily's character, um, uh, Chomyuk. And, and in that sense, Legasov's ch- character changed. Uh, and so I had to play the, the person on the page. You know, I couldn't, you're not playing someone from history. You're not playing someone from biographies. You're not playing someone from um, documentaries. You're playing the character that's been written by the, by the writer. Right. Because that person has done a deep dive and researched themselves and they've figured out what they need to tell the story and they've excluded parts that aren't going to help them. They're going to be distractions, you know? Right, right. So the real stuff was married, he had children, um, and that's, you don't see that in our story. And, and certainly the impression that one gets is that he's, he's, he lives alone, you know? You don't get the feeling that he's a he's a married man in this. So I, I just think it was a sort of a, he, Craig needed a different journey for the character to tell a, a different story. And one of the things that 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 is so well written um, that Craig has done is that you're talking about you don't see his family relationship, but it's the relationship between him and Boris Sherbina, if I'm saying that right, Stellan Skarsgård's yeah. character, and they do this dance both with each other in their different sort of positions of, of, you know, one being the scientist and one in politics, and also the dance that they do maneuvering with the power structure and being watched by the KGB and intimidating. Um, and they seem to have this patience in knowing how to maneuver. What did you learn about um, people in different power positions having to, you know, react like this in order to do the right thing or to get their will through? In, I mean, Legasov had no power uh, at all. Um, any power or status that he had was confirmed on him by Shebina. Sheb, uh, and Shebina has all the power. Um, and that was, and, and the difference that occurs in that relationship is that Shebina starts to trust him and starts to, he believes him and he starts to rely on him. He needs him. And basically he realizes that the situation is as bad as Legasov 
feared it might be. And then at that point, he needs him to figure out what to do about it. Um, but he, but it, he never gets, Lagartov never got to a point where he was, uh, he had authority himself. Um, not in our story. Um, and, uh, I mean, he certainly, you know, he, 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 he put himself on the line. But I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I find it kind of interesting in, in uh, that there's a sort of, I mean, you draw on things that make sense to you about being in a situation where you know, um, <laughs> you know why something isn't working, but no one wants to listen to you. Well, you know, that's quite often the actor, you know what I mean? I mean, I'm sure everyone <laughs> feels that way. You're in a situation where you can see why it's not working, but no one asks you. And if you try and speak up, people's flat, you know, they, they shut you down. Mm. Um, I, I think that's fairly common to everyone in any kind of uh, in any kind of business structure that where you feel you don't you're not invited to speak. Not that that's the case specifically with this. I just mean in terms of the way that these things are structured. I just think it, uh, Craig and you you guys have really captured um, this sort of cheeky, smart way you have to maneuver in this type of situation where, I mean, basically your life is on the line, your career is on the line. This is a dictate, you know, it's a very special way of maneuvering. <laughs> that very much comes through Shabina's character because he understands how you you get around the, the bureaucracy, whereas uh, there's a certain um, naivete to, to this Legasov in that he doesn't understand the need for it. He just thinks, well, surely if you explain to people what what could happen, that everyone will then throw their resources at it. So he, I think he, that side of it, he learned from him. Mm. And um, he, uh, he, he, I mean, in a way, there's a sort of slightly childish aspect to Legasov. And... Um, that he he matures through the story through his relationship with Sherbina. Um but there's a kind of uh, there's a a social ineptness to him. Um, uh, and then uh, you know certainly if he had that there's the idea in that episode two where he suddenly speaks up in the Politburo meeting where you feel that uh, he. he it's a sort of almost it's an outburst as opposed to um, someone from a more reasoned point of view would be saying, uh, "Dear great general secretary, most you know most awesome man, if you could for one moment permit me to offer you know a slightly he he doesn't go at it he comes at it to almost an emotional outburst you know and it's a um, it, it's a there's a sort of a child a childish quality to him that well, he hasn't really learned how to interact with people yet. Well, the good we did. It doesn't matter. What does matter is that to them, justice was done. See, a just world is a sane world. There was nothing sane about Chernobyl. No, Chernobyl is on fire. And every atom of uranium is like a bullet, penetrating everything in its path. Metal, concrete, flesh, 
Now, Chernobyl holds over three trillion of these bullets. Some of them will not stop firing for 50,000 years. But I love their relationship. They really need each other yeah. in that, in that well, sense. Well, that's his main relationship in the story. Mm-hmm. My, my main relationship is with him and my relationship with Emily's character. Is she operates almost like Horatio in Hamlet. I mean, she's, she's his conscience. She, she's the truth teller mm-hmm. and tells, the, you know, tells you the uncomfortable reality of what you're going to have to do. Right. You know, she's telling you the things you don't want to hear. <laughs> somebody else, <laughs> somebody else do that. Right. Another incredible aspect of this is, of course, Yuan Renk's work, but also the, the production design, the hair and makeup, your glasses. I mean, yeah. everything is just, yeah. can you tell me a little <laughs> bit about the you look? You love the glasses, that's great. How did you feel sort of entering into this world, which is almost a different world? Well... Again, uh, it was one of the things that everybody took to heart, which was the desire for it to be authentic and not sensationalized, not romanticized. You know, I, I'm not, I don't mean to say this in a pejorative sense, but not Hollywoodized. Mm-hmm. Um, so there weren't, you know, there were versions of those clothes that could be more flattering. <laughs> <laughs> but, really? But, but that would. Yeah, but that wouldn't have been true. You know, they had, um, uh, she had someone from actually who worked in a, one of the, the, the clothes factories for, in the Soviet Union at the time, one of the tailors, and she was there saying, no, this cut would look like this because they were mass produced, so they wouldn't have been fitted. They would have been fitted for, there were sort of four body outlines that these clothes were made for. So it would have looked like that. And, you, you know, um, so in just, I mean, the specific stuff like that in terms of the glasses, yes, they, they had to be made because you can't get them anymore. Mm-hmm. But she would sit there and again, there were these things were mass produced and there weren't that many options, you know, similarly to the shoes, which were horrifically uncomfortable as well. Uh, and then that went also true to the, uh, to, uh, Daniel with his makeup design was again, just painstakingly researched and authentic and that was and again uh, the word that um johan and his dp were after which was you've seen versions of this story where they have a documentary uh, fly on the wall feel to it but they're both stylists oh yeah you've seen his work if you've seen his videos music videos so they 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 were able to on the one hand have it feel like you were right there but also they they managed to create space for themselves so they could give you these stunning visuals at the same time, but without it feeling as though you've suddenly stepped into a different genre of movie. No one does oppression and, and grayness as beautifully as you on rank. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you that when I see him this week. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, you really, it just, it's always gorgeous and very sort of, you know, East East European scary. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things that that is is your parents both were actors. Your father was, of course, the great Richard Harris. Did you see acting and celebrity as fun as a kid? No, I didn't actually. I I saw. I'm. I don't remember my mother being an actor because 
the truth is that when she was 25, she had three children and uh, my father was never going to be a Mr. Mum and stay at home. So she had to, she was forced to give up her career to raise three children. Mm-hmm. Um, so I never saw her acting on stage, but uh, yes, I could see her command a room and, um, you know, and she, she has the uh, diva gene to her, you know, in public, you know, around the house, if you like. But my father, I, I saw, I would see people come at him at airports and um, come up to him in restaurants and things like that. And, uh, um, and when I was younger, it annoyed me because I didn't want to share him with the world, you know. But um, I, I see, I didn't, and I didn't see the work so, so much. So I see it as being fun. I saw him having fun being himself, and that part I always appreciated. Um, my brothers didn't always, would sometimes find that to be embarrassing. But when my father would, I mean, he was the sort of person who would walk into a room and he could, uh, he would, he'd be delighted if everybody in the room looked at him. And then once he got their attention, he'd hold on to it and make sure that they didn't look anywhere else. He'd make it worth their while to pay attention to him and he enjoyed it. He enjoyed being himself. So that part I, I saw him doing and enjoyed him being him. Do you enjoy that? I don't, I don't have that. I don't do that. I don't, I, I don't like, um, when I'm, uh, I know it sounds odd, but I'm, I was very shy growing up and it's still part of me that that way. I enjoy acting. I enjoy performing. I enjoy acting on stage and in front of a camera. But when I'm out in real life, I really don't want, uh, I, I mean, it's, it, I don't like a lot of attention and part of it is you need to, um, you need to be able to live in the world to be able to, to describe it. You know, that's one of the dangers of becoming very, very famous is the, it becomes a bubble mm-hmm. and, um, you, you're, you're not able to, you know, you need that as part of your, your resources in terms of the, when you, when you start playing scenes and characters and stuff like that. So if, if you, I think it becomes detrimental. Also the audience as well, if they know too much about you. It gets, it takes longer and longer for them to drop it away when they're watching you. So, uh, you know, you need anonymity is useful. Mr. Harris, thank you so much for your time, and thank you so much for um, this incredible series. And I hope everyone will catch it on HBO when it comes very soon. Thank you, Christina. Thank you so much to Jared Harris. Chernobyl premieres on HBO May 6th. And thank you for listening and sending me your thoughts and feedback. Keep doing that through Twitter at PodPopCulture or at Christina Biro. And thank you for subscribing. We're now on Luminary, so you can check us out there as well. This show was edited by Julia Scott, and I'm Christina Yerling Biro. Marie Kelly. Wild Precious Life is a podcast about dreaming big, digging in and connecting across distance, division, and loss. In each episode, I talk with prize-winning writers, musicians, and wanderers who remind all of us how we can make the most of the time we have. So meet me here. 
Let's walk and talk and dream and discover what it means to be wild, precious, and brave. 